0: your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. And if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. I believe we have some extra Bibles in the back. Matthew chapter 9. Also want to let you women know that, what's the date, Glenda? Matthew, I mean, uh, January, January 26th, the women will begin meeting Uh, In this building up at 502, on Wednesday nights, there will be a Bible study and uh, prayer time for the women. Okay, Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then the disciples of John came to Him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you'd open up your word to us this morning, Lord, and that our uh, hard and stubborn hearts would be softened and open up to everything uh, that you have to say to us this morning, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, please greet one another. Thank you, Greg. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 17, Jesus is in a feast, he's participating in a feast the house of the tax collector Matthew, who is the writer of the book. And the people, Jesus and the people around him, are feasting on every delicacy that was available to people of that day, rich people of that day, rather, and there's expensive wine, there's laughter, there's joy, there's happiness. Now, if there's anything that upsets a legalistic person, that is a person who's in a religious system that is based not on a relationship with God but rules and traditions and self-punishing rituals, it is to watch someone, anyone, have fun. If there's anything that bothers a legalistic person, it's it's seeing someone, anyone, happy. Why? Because the happiness of others reminds them of their own misery that fills their life. And usually, the way they find comfort when they see a happy person or a happy gathering of people is to mutter to themselves something like, well, thank God I'm not like they are. Thank God I'm not a sinner like them. You know, I may be miserable, but I'm righteous. I'm a law abider. They won't be laughing when they're toasting in Hades. or You know, sort of deal. Now, if there's one thing that is even more intolerable to a legalistic person than to see someone happy, it is to see someone happy who claims to be a follower of God. To them, you can't have it both ways. Following God is by by definition. It's it's not fun. They think to follow God, you must give up fun. A legalistic person has no understanding of grace. Grace, all the uh, that the concept of grace that someone is made right with God for free. Grace, all the sin and ugly things that you have ever done are set aside by God for nothing from you in return. Nothing. That's what grace is. It's so easy because it was so costly to Jesus. They don't understand that. They believe a person is made right with God by sort of paying for their own sin, by giving up the fun, giving up the pleasure, by giving up laughter, joy, and happiness. And so if they see someone who claims to follow God, having a good time, having a happy time, having fun, their reaction is, hey, you can't do that. That's not allowed. That That's fun. And one way or another, they will try to throw a wet blanket on whatever is happening. Now, there were two groups looking at Jesus uh, as he was at this great uh, feast, and both of them had a reaction like this. Hey, Jesus, you can't do that. You're having fun. You're with people who are having fun. You're, You're in the midst of laughter. Now, the first group was the Pharisees, and... The Pharisees' whole life was dedicated to separating themselves from ordinary people. The word Pharisee, the very word Pharisee, means separated or separatist. And one of the things they separated themselves from was the joy of reaching out to lost people. The joy of reaching out to people who don't know God, I, I, I got to tell you, in First John, it says, you know, we share these things t- with you to make our joy complete. And, and I was just reminded this week, as I was able to share with a couple people, nothing will make your joy more complete than sharing your faith and just releasing it. And so, the Pharisees were separated. They're, they engaged in the most severe forms of self-denial. And above all, they denied themselves of the pleasure of eating and drinking with people who didn't know God. They weren't even allowed to rub up against their elbows. And so they were looking at this great celebration. It was a celebration of life, really, because Matthew, the tax collector, had new life, a life of freedom, a liberty and joy with God. Jesus said, if the Son of Man sets you free, you're free indeed. And they were looking on, and in verse 11, they said to Jesus and his disciples, read with me, verse 11, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Then Jesus answered to them. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, the Pharisees would have recognized that immediately. It comes from Micah 6, 6 and, uh, in the Old Testament. And so, what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, He's saying this, you, you know, you guys live a tremendous life of self-sacrifice. You read the law six hours a day. You keep away from everything that is wicked, foul, and ugly. You are careful to obey all the rules and regulations which uh, you and your forebears make up, but God desires mercy, not sacrifice. The word there for mercy uh, in Micah 6:6 6, 6, is chesed, chesed, c-h-e-s-e-d uh, or something like that. Chesed, and it's a very difficult word to translate from Hebrew to Uh, English or Hebrew to Greek, it's a whole bunch of words, just like mushed up into love and mercy and joy and and and, uh, kindness, all sort of mushed up together. Usually in the Old Testament, you'll see a word like loving kindness, the English word translated from hesed, and so God desired desires a heart of loving kindness towards him. Jesus is saying, I desire mercy. Chesed, loving kindness towards him. What does that mean? A person who has a heart of loving kindness toward God has a heart bursting with gratitude for God because he or she recognizes that there is no hope for him or her, no hope apart from God's mercy, none. A person who has a heart of loving-kindness towards God understands there is no sacrifice, no life of self-denial, no heroic deed that is able to salvage their hopelessly lost life. Mercy, God's mercy, is the only thing that, that can restore them to God. And think about it. This feast was filled with those people. It was filled with those people. It says in verse 11, many tax collectors, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with Jesus. Think about it. They were rubbing elbows with the Son of God. And this feast in Matthew 9 was filled with them. And think about it, Jesus, God, is getting what he says he desires most. Not people who come to him saying, you know, look at all the things I can offer you, Jesus. Look at all the stuff I've done this past week. Look at all the stuff I've done in the past month or my whole life or whatever. No, he's getting a person who says, Lord, I can offer you nothing. Thank you for letting me sit down with you. I can't believe you're letting me sit down with you. Thank you for accepting me. Thank you for your mercy. And, and that made them filled with happiness, joy, gratefulness, laughter. It filled their hearts with loving kindness. As Jesus said, God, God desires, he's using them as an example when he's talking to the, uh, uh, the Pharisees. God desires mercy, loving kindness, a heart of loving kindness, not sacrifice. And the Pharisees looked on and said, you can't do that. You can't do that. This is wrong. These people are sinners. And Jesus is saying, what are you talking about? God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Now, there was another group who was looking on and and who have sort of been an enigma uh, to everyone, to a lot of people when they read this verse. And and they also had big frowns on their faces. Uh, They were the disciples of John the Baptist, It says in verse 14, it says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Now, if you read that, if you just read that, or if you've read that in the past, and you read that, and you sort of scratch your head, and you ask yourself, Why are these guys following John the Baptist? I mean, isn't like Jesus ministering now? Didn't John the Baptist say, Jesus must increase, I must decrease? Shouldn't these guys be following Jesus? If you guys are asking yourselves that, you're asking the right questions. That's exactly what you're supposed to be asking yourself. John the Baptist's ministry was to prepare the world for Jesus, to introduce the world to Jesus. That had been done. By this time in Matthew chapter 9, John the Baptist was no longer even alive. He had been arrested by King Herod and killed. God had taken him home. Jesus said he was the, the, the most righteous man ever born to a, 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 a woman in the natural. God had taken him home, and these guys here in Matthew 9.14, they're following a dead man, and worse than that, a dead man whose ministry had been accomplished. There was nothing else to do. Meanwhile, these men were continuing to imitate John the Baptist's outward conduct without also imitating his heart. Now, before he died, and uh, John the Baptist, uh, with God's very deliberate leading, he did fast often. He was sent to the wilderness to live in lonely places, the Bible says. And he fasted. And when he did eat, he ate locusts and honey. I just read an, an article the other day about all those locusts that swept through Israel recently and all these... Uh, Jewish people, enjoying, uh, you know, all kinds of locusts uh, in different ways, whatever, locusts with uh, matzah, locusts with honey, whatever, but uh, that's what John the Baptist uh, did, and these disciples of John the Baptist have made the mistake that so many men and women, and we do the same uh, throughout history, we create for ourselves, they created for themselves their own system of righteousness. Now, in this case, it involved frequent fasting, and they were trying to to achieve the righteousness of John the Baptist and not of God. And so they, too, were looking at Jesus at this great feast, this great celebration, and they had the same reaction as the Pharisees. Hey, this isn't fair. We spend all our time fasting, denying ourselves all kinds of pleasure, and here Jesus is and and His disciples, you know, look at them. They're having all this fun, and they're not denying themselves of anything. What is Jesus' response? Verse 15, And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Now, I think this response is as interesting, not only for what Jesus did say, but also for what he did not say. It is interesting that Jesus did not say, hey guys, why are you following John the Baptist? He's dead. Didn't you hear what John the Baptist said about me? John, John's ministry is complete. He, he introduced the world to me. There's, there's no ministry left for him to do. I am the one with the truth. I am the one you should be following. I am the one you need. Jesus didn't say anything like that. In fact, I'm convinced that after Jesus' response, they walked away sad and disgruntled. Now, one of the reasons I believe they walked away is because, believe it or not, to this day... There is a religion whose adherents are, consider themselves, followers of John the Baptist. There's at least 10,000 of them in Iraq and then throughout the world. They trace their lineage to this time, this time of John the Baptist. They're called the Sabian Meneans, if you're interested about them, I have an article. Really interesting, really tragic. They believe Jesus was the false messiah. mean, is that misguided or what? How can you get more misguided than that? I I, I don't know. But uh, they are so extremely legalistic that no one is allowed to convert to their religion. In fact, U.S. News uh, interviewed their leader, Sheik Satar Jabbar Hilu, and he said, for 2,000 years, nobody has been able to enter our religion. That's how legalistic they are. Talk about someone who has no understanding of grace. <laughs> Can you imagine having to trust in your bloodline for your salvation? <laughs> but uh, but but here in Matthew chapter 9, perhaps the original Sabian Manians, these disciples of John the Baptist, uh, which, by the way, just so you know, that Peter was um, a disciple of John the Baptist, and at the right time, he changed and began to uh, uh, follow uh, Jesus. Uh, but in any event, they... These folks are talking with Jesus, and Jesus doesn't criticize their religious practice. He doesn't say a word to try to convince them to stay with them. Um, And I don't know about you, but uh, this speaks volumes to me about how ministry should be done. Jesus' method of attracting people was very simple. He taught the truth. He practiced what he preached. And he re- relied on the Holy Spirit to bring in the people. End of story. You know, how often do we add to that? You know, we meet someone from another church. We got the dove, you know, the Calvary Chapel doves. you know. We, just, that's just us. And we have a copyright on it or whatever. Or, you know, the worship at Calvary or verse by verse, chapter by chapter. It's really the only way. And, and, and you know, manipulating people. If we have to rely on manipulation or criticism of someone from another church or even someone from another faith, if we're relying on that, we're not, we're not witnessing to them in a Christ-like way. Look at the example of Jesus. Couldn't be clear from these verses here. Anyway, in verse 14, the, 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 the disciples of John look at Jesus. He's surrounded by food and wine, probably music and other festivities, and they come up to Jesus and say, this isn't right. Why do you have all the fun? Why do we and the Pharisees, it says, fast often. So they fasted often. But your disciples do not fast at all. By the way, fasting, I believe, is thoroughly biblical. Uh, if you don't fast periodically, even as few, at least as once a year, you know, I, I strongly suggest that you do, but that's another sermon for another day. Uh, he, he, it says here that they fast often, and they're asking Jesus, why are you just sort of, uh, you guys feeding your faces, and, and, and we're in all this self-denial. And Je- Jesus responds by saying something, I'm convinced neither John's disciples nor the Pharisees understood. He compared the relationship between his disciples and himself to guests at a wedding feast guests at a wedding feast. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. Religion is something man makes up in an attempt to try to connect with God, to justify himself before God. All John's disciples, these disciples, knew about, as well as the Pharisees, was religion. Meanwhile, Jesus was teaching relationship. Friends of the bridegroom, it says. The literal translation in in Greek is, is sons of the bride chamber. It was their responsibility just to bless the socks off of the bridegroom. And so, Jesus was teaching relationship, not just any relationship, but a marriage relationship, the deepest, closest, most intimate relationship known to man. Now, the idea of man having a close relationship, an intimate relationship with God, may have been foreign to these Jewish people as, you know, we're going through the Old Testament on uh, Sunday nights, Christ in the Old Testament. And one of the things we have learned through our study is uh, prior to Christ, God was utterly unapproachable. Man's sin had created a chasm, a wall, a break in his relationship with God. And, And prior to Christ, there simply was no plan for some average Joe who was feeling bad or whatever to just approach God. There was nothing like that. You can see that in how the temple is, was constructed. In the temple, there was a series of courtyards. The very outer courtyard, uh, everyone was allowed, everyone. Gentiles, Jews, everyone. The next one, only Jews. The, the, the next inner courtyard, only Jewish men. The next inner courtyard, only priests. And finally, in the Holy of Holies, where God dwelled, only the high priest, and he only went once a year, and only after sacrificing about 20 animals and having five baths, and that's because just the holiness of God. God was teaching man. He was reintroducing man to the world, and, and He was teaching them about God is holy, and, and you need you need redemption by the Son of God is really what was going on there. And And so, you know, we take the privilege of going into God's presence for granted. We shouldn't. There was a time where only one person in the world could go to God. And that only once per year. That changed when Jesus died on the cross. And that veil between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the world was torn in two. And we have that access now through Christ. Hebrews 10.14 says this, By one offering, Jesus has perfected forever those who are being sanctified therefore brethren having boldness to enter the holy of holies by the blood of Jesus let us draw near to God with full assurance of faith in other words through the death and resurrection of Jesus you can now have a relationship with God and here in chapter uh, Matthew chapter 9 verse 15 Jesus is saying that The relationship between God and man is not one in which you, you know, you're moping around like a deadpan all day, you know, oh, this is such a horrible life, this life of self-denial and fasting and punishment and, you know, hey, you. You know, beat me on the back with a stick. I'm, I'm feeling a little happy now, you know, too happy. You know, that's a, a sort of deal. And, and, and no, th- this relationship uh, is, it, the relationship between man and God is not like that. It's a relationship like close friends celebrating at a marriage. The Greek is sons of the bride chamber. This relationship with God is like uh, the friends of the bridegroom, who, it, It's whose job is to do whatever they can to just bless the, the bridegroom. In other words, there should be joy. Just like at this feast at Matthew's house, there should be joy. There should be laughing. There should be eating and drinking and feasting. Now, at a Jewish wedding at this time, during the marriage week, all work was suspended. Even daily prayer was suspended. It was the duty of the friends of the bridegroom to gladden the heart of the bridegroom. And so, um, all work was suspended. And that was actually rules uh, put in place uh, by the rabbis probably in the Talmud. And the rabbis uh, put that in place as an extension of Deuteronomy 24, verse 5, which says this. You're going to love this, women. Get ready. When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business, uh, and he shall be free at home for one year to bring happiness to his wife. Isn't that just great? Uh, Gino, are you doing that, man? <laughs> so, uh, but uh, in, in any event, uh, you know, using this verse as a springboard, uh, the rabbis uh, ordered that everything that was heavy or cumbersome or, or burdensome be suspended during the marriage week. And instead of a honeymoon, the, the Jews uh, at this time uh, had a whole week or up to 14 days with their friends after uh, their wedding. That's not my idea what, what, of what I would want, but uh, that's uh, what they wanted. And uh, during the whole week, there was a feast, and uh, there was the tradition to address the bride and groom as the, as the king and the queen. You know, you were literally like the king and queen uh, for a, a week. And, you know, the, remember the wedding of Cana where uh, Jesus turned the jugs of uh, water into wine? And some people read that and go, man, these people really must have been getting drunk or something. Well, that wasn't the case. The case was that the wedding, the marriage week, it's long. The wedding feast is so long, they needed a lot of wine. And, and so, uh, uh, that was part of uh, the tradition. And so, the point of all this is that when Jesus in Matthew 9, verse 15, describes the relationship between God-man, uh, really in terms of this wedding feast, he's describing a brand new covenant between man and God. So a lot of the Jews may not have really understood the connection here, but the old covenant was a covenant of law in which God was essentially unapproachable. The new covenant is a covenant of grace in which people come into a relationship with God, a relationship that should be characterized by the joy, the happiness that exists between friends and of the groom and the bridegroom, sons of the bride chamber. Anyway, verse 16, Jesus says, No one puts a piece of shrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. If you put a new patch in an old garment, when you wash the garment, the new patch will shrink and cause the old garment to tear. If you put new wine into old wineskins, the new wine, as it is completing the fermenting process, will expand, and the old dry wineskin will break, will burst. The Pharisees and the disciples of John were like old religious garments. They were like old, dried-up, crackly wineskins. Jesus was holding out to the world new garments and new wine, and there was no way on earth, no way on earth that the new garment was going to mesh with the old garment or the new wine would would do well in an old wineskin. When you have a legalistic person or if there's a a piece of your heart, a strain in your heart that's legalistic. When you have a legalistic person, the type of person who looks at people who are happy and and love the Lord and mutters to himself, look at those sinners. I thank God I'm not like them. You know, I may be miserable, but I'm righteous. And, you know, they won't be laughing when they're in Hades, this sort of deal. When you have a person like that, you're not going to change them by trying to throw a new patch on their on their old ugly garment. In other words, you're not going to change him by going up to him and saying something like, you know, hey man, God loves you, really. The Bible says you should soften up a little. You're, you're not gonna change him by slapping a, 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 a patch on, on this this old ugly garment of his or hers. They'll be like, get away, heathen, you know, sort of deal. What do you know? You can't put a new patch on an old garment. You can't throw a Band-Aid on a heart that is corrupt to the core. A whole new life is needed. So the Pharisees and the disciples of John needed much more than a patch on their religion. They needed a completely new relationship with with God. And they needed new garments and new wineskins. Now, one of the best examples of this is in John chapter 3. A, a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, and he was seeking answers for his life. And uh, he said to Jesus in John uh, 3, verse 2, he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him." And what did Jesus say? He said this, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus answered in so many words, What do you mean, born again? (laughs) And Jesus answered, Unless one is born of water, meaning in the flesh, as a child out of the womb, and then born of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, I've often wondered why why Jesus was... He seemed to be kind of hard on Nicodemus, right? I mean... Here's a guy risking everything he had. I mean, he was on the Sanhedrin. If he had been caught coming by night, he and his family would have been expelled from the temple, shunned from the community. You would have thought maybe Jesus would have said, You know, I really admire you, Nicodemus, for coming out here and talking to me like this. Instead, he says, As far as God's concerned, you're dead. You are dead. You need a whole new life. The life you now live must be completely set aside and a new life must be reborn within you by the Spirit of God. Stephanie and I used to know a guy, she may forget him, but there was a guy in a church that we went to who had a a heart from someone else. He had a heart transplant. And, you know, just because he may have had a, a good liver and a good kidney and good eyes didn't mean that he needed major, major surgery, a heart transplant. He couldn't rely on some other good things in his life. Nicodemus was a good man, probably better than anyone in this room in the natural. I mean, uh, he, this, was, this took an enormous amount of courage. He was, he, to go to Jesus at night, he was giving up possibly everything he had. But Jesus said, I'm sorry. None of that's worth anything. You need a whole new life. You need to be born again by the Spirit of God. There is no rejoicing until you shed your old wineskins and take on the new one. And when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and the disciples of John, I believe He brings up this old, uh, this thing about old and new wineskins because He had a living, breathing example right in front of them, Matthew the tax collector. As we talked a few weeks ago, uh, tax collectors were not even allowed in the temple because they were considered snakes. And snakes, according to Leviticus chapter 11, verse 42, were unclean. So they weren't allowed to be, go, go to the temple. And they got that reputation deservedly. I mean, these were Jews who not only betrayed their people to the Romans, but they, conti- they proceeded to rip off their own people. And then they lived in palaces right in the, the neighborhoods of the people they ripped off. But Matthew understood a lot better than someone like Nicodemus. There's no way I'm ever going to get this old garment to work. I'm never going to be able to clean it up. This life of sin and ugliness uh, and everything around me, there's no way these garments I'm wearing can be repaired by throwing a religious patch on them. I need new garments. And so, figuratively speaking, he threw off his old garments and, and he took on the new ones. Let me close with this. Where are you this morning? Where are you this morning? There is no rejoicing until you shed your old wineskins and take on the new one. Whether you're, you've come to Christ or you've been living with Christ for twenty years, there's no rejoicing until you shed your old wineskins and, and take on the new ones. And you know something, wineskins need to be replaced. On a regular basis. We were just talking last Sunday night about how you, we need new songs in the, right throughout the Psalms. Many, many different times, J, uh, David is saying, wow, you put a new song in my heart, God. The Bible says in Galatians 5.22 that the fruit of the Spirit is joy, peace, kindness, love, loving kindness, chesed. The fruit of religion is frustration, dryness, Emptiness, striving in our spirits. You know, so often in counseling, I'm talking with someone, and it just becomes extremely obvious that the person, they want, they don't like their frustrated life. But they're trying to ask me, you know, what kind of Band-Aids, Pastor Steve, can I put on my life? And, and i'll tell them i'll be honest with you i i don't know i haven't heard an audible voice from god but it looks to me like you need major surgery major changes in your life either in their heart or 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 maybe physical changes or or something and 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 i share this with them and they start squirming in their seats you know you, you know I, I don't just give me a patch Maybe that will work. Don't talk to me about major surgery. Uh, you, you know, and, and it's because you know how old garments are. They're comfortable, and we know them. And they're warm, and they're familiar. And I tell people, you know, I got to be honest with you. You got to come out of your comfort zone, and, and you got to be willing to take some risks and, 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 and live by faith. And they're like, no, I can't do that. I'm too comfortable in these garments. And, and there's a sinking in my spirit because I know. That, where there is, where that unbelief, because that's what it is, it's unbelief, I know where that's going to take them. Just more striving, more frustration, more emptiness. If you are in the place of striving and frustration, get rid of the old garment and put on a new one. Get rid of the old wineskin and take on the no- new wineskin. That is how we are able to continue the marriage feast with our Lord. Okay. We'll continue. uh, For those of you who'd like uh, tonight, actually in the book of Numbers, talking about Balaam and Balak at 6.30. But until then, let's, let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for new wineskins, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that um, you're always willing to to give us a new song in our heart if we, by faith, ask for it. New garments, new wineskins, Lord. Father, I pray for anyone in this room who there's a vexation in their spirit, Uh, just a frustration. A striving Lord. And I pray that they would let go of the old garments, Lord, that are that, that's causing those things. Maybe there's someone in this room, Lord, that is never come into a relationship with you. They've never like Matthew lay down their garments at your feet. I just pray for that person, Lord. I pray that you'd lead them to the cross. For everyone else, Lord, I just pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be relentless with them, drawing the old wineskins away, the crackly, dry, ugly old wineskin and that they would lay hold of the new wine skins, and that Lord, you're the new wine, the wine of the Holy Spirit, would refresh them. It's your Word says, our times of repentance bring refreshing from the Lord." God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, anyone who needs prayer, please come up. God bless you.